An assassin shoots and kills former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Japan's longest-serving head of state since the end of World War II. It's Friday, July 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what we know about the assassination, which apparently included a homemade firearm. Gun violence is extremely rare overall in Japan. It's very difficult to buy a gun. It's not a matter of political debate as it is in the United States. Also this hour, BA5 of the Omicron variant becomes the dominant strain in the U.S., pushing up COVID infections, though experts say its impact is manageable. And how a survivor of a mass shooting became a special agent in the FBI and an advocate for gun control. It's 401. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is taking another swing at the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. In announcing an executive order today aimed at countering the ruling, Biden said the only way to secure the right to choose is for Congress to restore the protections as federal law. Biden also called on Americans to make abortion an election issue this fall. In the challenge from the court to the American women and men. This is a nation. The challenge is go out and vote. Well, for God's sake, there's an election November. Vote, 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 vote. Consider the challenge accepted, court. The executive order will attempt to safeguard access to emergency contraception, protect patient privacy, and set up mobile clinics along the borders of states that ban abortion. Funerals and memorial services are being held today for some of those killed in a mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, this week. NPR's David Shaper reports the father of the 21-year-old accused shooter is defending his decision to sign off on his son's firearms ownership ID before he turned 21. Bob Cremo Jr. tells ABC News he spent time with his son the night before the mass shooting, sitting out in the yard, and saw no signs of what he was planning. Not an inkling, a warning, warned that you know something like this was going to happen. Cremo downplays an incident in 2019 when police were called because his son Robert Cremo III was threatening to kill everyone, saying it's being taken out of context. Asked if he regrets signing an affidavit allowing his son to get a firearm owner's ID card, the elder Cremo says no. I filled out the consent form to, to allow my son to go through the process. Cremo added, had I purchased the guns and given them to him, that's a different story. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. Flags are flying at half-staff at U.S. government buildings to honor former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports, Abe was assassinated today at a campaign rally in Japan. Abe was giving a campaign speech for a candidate in Sunday's elections for the upper house of parliament. In video footage of the attack, two shots can be heard. Abe was rushed to the hospital but showed no vital signs. Doctors declared his death shortly after 5 p.m. local time. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida called the attack on Abe barbaric and an assault on the core of democracy. Abe served two terms as prime minister for a total of eight years. He pushed to strengthen the country's military, beef up the alliance with the U.S., and jumpstart Japan's economy after two decades of stagnation. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 46 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. 
The board that disciplines attorneys in Massachusetts is recommending the toughest sanction possible against a former prosecutor. The Board of Bar Overseers, or BBO, is proposing disbarment for a former assistant attorney general over a state drug lab scandal. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The board says Ann Kazmarek should be disbarred for withholding exculpatory evidence in the case of disgraced chemist Sonia Farrick. After Farrick pleaded guilty to using drugs she was supposed to be testing, defense attorneys discovered that Farrick's drug use went on longer than the AG's office claimed. Thousands of criminal cases were dismissed. Assistant Bar Counsel Joe McAleski says the board's recommendation is precedent-setting. It should reassure the public that such egregious misconduct will be dealt with severely, and it should warn other prosecutors to be careful. The BBO recommends one-year and three-month law license suspensions for two other former prosecutors. The proposed penalties must be approved by the state's highest court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Local leaders and members of the Japanese community in Boston are expressing shock over the assassination over of Japan's former prime minister. Senator Ed Markey chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia. He says he is saddened by the killing of Shinzo Abe. The Japanese consulate in Boston will have condolence books available Monday and Tuesday for members of the Japanese community to sign. Members of the Massachusetts All-Democratic Congressional Delegation are applauding President Biden's actions today on abortion rights. The president's executive order calls for the federal government to push back against any state efforts to limit women's efforts to travel across state lines to get an abortion. Senator Elizabeth Warren says today's actions are important first steps. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says the president's actions protect patients' rights. Both are calling for further action in Congress. The Sumner Tunnel will be closed for the weekend starting tonight at 11 and will remain closed until Monday morning at 5. The shutdown is for repairs to the 87-year-old tunnel that connects East Boston with downtown. The project means the tunnel will be closed to traffic every weekend with the exception of holiday weekends until next May. In sports, Red Sox will host the Yankees for the second game of a four-game set at Fenway tonight. Connor Siebold getting the start. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 84 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. BA5, a subvariant of Omicron, is now dominant in the U.S., and it accounts for more than half of all COVID infections. Its quick rise corresponds with an increase in reinfections and hospitalizations. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now with more. Hey, Allison. Hi, Elsa. Good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so tell us more about BA5. Like, does its rise mean we're going to go into another surge here in the U.S.? I think we're in the midst of a silent surge at a time when most people use rapid tests. It's hard to know just how many people are infected. But one indicator, Elsa, is that hospitalizations appear to be rising slightly again. And reinfections are on the rise, too, according to some data from New York, for instance. Some people who were infected with Omicron in December or January are getting it again. Uh, Here's Michael Osterholm. He's an infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota. 
this is really a hyper transmissible virus. And if you look right now, as BA5 is increasing, we're seeing this exposure now with the level of infections with this virus is if you have a good elevator ride, you very well could get infected. This really struck me also, this idea that an elevator ride with an infected person could be enough of an exposure, uh, even for those of us who've been vaccinated and boosted. I mean, I'm one of those people who got COVID back in December. So where does this leave us? Mm -hmm. What does this mean for the fall, you think? Well, the more curveballs this virus is thrown, the more humble scientists like Osterholm have become. It's just hard to predict. But I think what is clear, according to lots of the infectious disease experts I've talked to, is that even as the subvariants have become even more transmissible, the bottom line is that the impact of a BA5 surge or whatever subvariant comes next will not likely be on the scale of last winter. We will be able to manage better. I talked to Anna Durbin, a physician at Johns Hopkins, about this. She said, we're already seeing this. The combination of prior infections, vaccinations is protective. She points out hospitalizations are up, but only slightly, and there are more tools to treat people who do get sick. Most people have some underlying immunity that is helpful in fighting the virus. We have antivirals, and I think because of that, we're not seeing a rise in deaths, and that's very reassuring. That tells me that this virus, even BA5, is not so divergent that it is escaping all arms of the immune system. She says as more children are vaccinated and new boosters come online to specifically target Omicron, which could happen around September, Mm -hmm. this will be helpful. Well, about children, it has been, what, three weeks since very young children. We're talking between six months old and five years old. They've been eligible to get COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. So have parents actually been getting their little children vaccinated the past three weeks? So far, only about 1% of the roughly 20 million kids in this age group have gotten their first shot. The CDC just released first numbers last night, uh, 267,000 children. My first reaction to that was, wow, after hearing from so many parents were so eager, it was quite low, it seemed. But uh, I spoke to Dr. Cameron Webb. He's a senior advisor on the White House COVID response team. He says the expectation is that many parents will ultimately opt for vaccines during well visits. What we heard from parents is that they wanted to get their kids vaccinated overwhelmingly in their pediatricians' offices, and nearly half said they wanted to do it during a regularly scheduled visit. And so you're going to continue to see a steady stream of parents with kids under five getting their kids vaccinated in the weeks and months to come. Some pediatricians have just begun to start offering the COVID shots to this age group, so there's some optimism the pace will pick up or at least be steady. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Elsa. Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated this morning at a campaign rally in the Japanese city of Nara. The suspected shooter used a handmade gun in a country where this sort of violence is incredibly rare. Matoko Rich is Tokyo bureau chief for The New York Times, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Do we know anything yet about who the suspected gunman is and what may have motivated him? Right now, we know very little. We know his name. His name is Tetsuya Yamagumi. He's 41 years old. He lived in the neighborhood. Um, He has said that he held a grudge against an organization that he believed was connected to Prime Minister Abe or former Prime Minister Abe, and that he did go to the site intending to kill him. But we don't really understand what he meant by that and what his motive is, but we're hoping that we'll find out more as the investigation unfurls. 
I mentioned that gun violence is incredibly rare in Japan. Can you talk a little bit more about that or how unusual of, of an assassination this is? It's exceedingly rare. I mean, the last time there was a political assassination was in 1960, and it was carried out with knives. I mean, the other sad uh, connection to Prime Minister Abe is that his grandfather, who was also a prime minister, um, was attacked by uh, a would-be assassin, um, but he was stabbed six times and he survived that attack. Um, but gun violence is extremely rare overall in Japan. I mean, they're just, it's very difficult to buy a gun. Um, it's not a matter of political debate as it is in the United States. Um, the assailant in this case, or the assassin in this case, used a homemade gun. Um, so overall, it's, it's, it's just extremely rare, and everyone in Japan is shocked. I mean, we've talked to lots of people today who say, you know, this is so un-Japanese, we couldn't believe this could happen here. It's really shattered a sense of safety that people have here. Hmm. You've mentioned that people have been shattered and horrified. I, I wonder, how are people remembering Abe? What do you think will stand out as his legacy? First and foremost, I think people will remember that he had immense longevity. He was the longest serving prime minister in Japan's history. He ushered in an era that he dubbed abonomics. He pushed through some laws in 2015, which allowed Japanese uh, soldiers to participate in overseas combat missions if they were fighting alongside allies. He pushed Japan to increase defense spending. He pushed Japan onto the world stage in efforts to make Japan a leader in the region as a uh, defense against a rising China. Uh, he curried favor with uh, world leaders, including Donald Trump. Um, but he also did not do what he set out to do, which was to revise the Constitution. The Constitution was written by American occupiers in the post-war uh, era and has a pacifist clause in it, and he wanted to revise that, and he never managed to accomplish that. I know you've done a good deal of reporting on Abe's record with women. On that count, how do you think he'll be remembered? Well, I think on the one hand, he kind of put the issue of women's empowerment on the table. Um, he coined the term or he took up the term womanomics and talked about the importance of leveraging this sort of a massive labor pool among 50% of the country, well-educated people uh, who could contribute to the economy. And he was right about that. And he often was very proud of having presided over a period in which Japan's labor force participation among women rose. What he sometimes failed to mention was that a lot of those women were working in contract jobs without benefits, low-paying jobs, part-time jobs, and that they also carried an enormous burden at home, which was not alleviated by Japan's work culture. Um, and over his watch, although he promised to make certain targets, like increasing the proportion of women who served in government, including in his party uh, and in business, none of those targets were reached while he was prime minister. So there was criticism of the, the fact that he prom made a lot of promises and didn't deliver. On the other hand, one has to give credit where credit is due. He kind of put it on the map as an issue and now, uh, in this upcoming upper house election, more women are standing as candidates than ever before in a Japanese national election. That was Matoko Rich, the Tokyo bureau chief for The New York Times. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh 
Now, we're going to remember a pioneer in black hair care. William Lee Morrow was from Alabama, but he made his name as a barber in San Diego, California, after he moved there in 1959. In 1962, a family friend returned from studying in Nigeria with a gift, a wooden comb. But where a standard comb has a lot of teeth close together, this one had fewer teeth. They were longer, spread farther apart. It was perfect for teasing out curly hair. That comb, African comb from the actual continent, he, he wanted to, to make it available in the Western world. Willie Morrow's daughter, Cheryl, says her father taught himself how to make and then mass produce the comb that everyone now knows as the Afropic, but it didn't take off right away. It, it was a slow turn because when you're an innovator, you know, you're first. His time would come. The civil rights movement of the 60s inspired younger black people to turn away from the white aesthetic of straight hair for a more natural look. And the Afro became the rage in part because it was also a political statement. And Morrow had since become an expert on what he called the Afro natural. He wrote books about it and everyone, it seemed, wanted his know-how and his Afro picks. At one point, he was selling 12,000 a week. In 1969, the Pentagon, which was clueless on the subject, hired Morrow to teach thousands of barbers in the military how to style black hair with a pick, says his daughter Cheryl. He taught how to hold it, how to get the most impact out of it, how to fluff the hair up and then align it and then cut it. And then the art of, you know, shaving black men in the military. By the late 70s, the Afro craze was fading, but Morrow stayed on trend. His California curl products allowed for softer, looser curls. They were copied widely. And eventually, what was later known as the Jerry Curl became the hottest style for young black folks in the 1980s. His daughter, Cheryl, eventually took over his business, which also included a radio station and a newspaper. She says the hairstyle most associated with her father was a kind of freedom for everyone. hair down and straight and don't care if they go to the salon. William Lee Morrow died last month. He was 82 years old. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the Ukrainian clown who is a refugee himself trying to lighten the spirits of others who've been displaced by the Russian invasion. In business news, French pharmaceutical Sanofi is paying a Waltham biotech company up to $2 billion to develop new technology for cancer and immune treatments. The deal with Skyhawk Therapeutics includes $54 million up front with the rest in milestone payments. It's the latest big deal for Skyhawk. The four-year-old company's already secured collaborations with Merck, Biogen, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. On Wall Street, little change for the markets. The Dow was down 46 points at 31,338. NASDAQ rose 13 points, and the S&P 500 fell three points. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, working to align investments with values like economic justice, human rights, and climate action. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. 
In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with overnight lows down in the mid-60s. All sunshine tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Sunday should be sunny again, upper 70s, and Monday still sunny, highs back in the mid-80s. Right now, 84 degrees in Boston. The time is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Night Pain, a nighttime pain reliever designed to help people fall asleep fast. It contains diphenhydramine and acetaminophen. More at ZZZQuill.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The vast displacement and movement of people around Ukraine amid the Russian invasion includes children bearing the stresses of war. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley found one person in western Ukraine displaced himself, trying to lighten their burden. He's known as Igor the Clown. There's a special live performance at this vine-covered open-air cafe in Chernovitsi's Taras Shevchenko Park. Igor the Clown has come to put on a show for the children. Bouncing around in a three-piece red suit, frizzy wig, and straw top hat, Igor asks the kids where they're from. Hands shoot up. Donetsk, Mikolaev. Many are from the current war hotspots. Ruslana Mikaluk owns the seasonal cafe Lito, or summer cafe, and hired clown Igor for the children. Because they have stress, they listen like mom, like, you know, very, like, bad emotion. Now we want to make nice emotion. And now they feel like life is continuing. Mikaluk has employed some of the children's parents in her cafe. She won't make a profit this summer, she says, but that's okay. Igor engages the children. There is frenetic dancing, jokes, and candy. Do you know how to say your country's name in English for our special guests, he asked them, referring to me. The kids draw pictures and belt out patriotic folk songs. At one point, he asked them about their dreams. I dreamed we beat the Russians, says a tiny girl. After the show, clown Igor Honcharev tells me it hurts to hear such things from children. He himself is from Lysyshansk, the last holdout town in the Luhansk region that fell to the Russians last week. My little town, Lysychansk, destroyed town. My town is fire now. He fled three months ago when the water, electricity, and gas were cut. Before the war started in 2014, Honcharev worked as a clown during the summer season in Crimea. Then Crimea was our country. Ten years of the summer. The parents are invited to come waltz with their children. Oksana Mikalenko is here with her young son and invites us to sit with people from across Ukraine. Kharkiv, Berdyansk, Mariupol, Kiev. Mikhailenko, a doctor from near Mariupol, says people refuse to cooperate with the occupiers. 
but she says the Russians are threatening to take their kids from them if they don't put them in school with the new Russian teachers. And my youngest son, he is six, and this year he enters school, so I decided that he needs to have happy childhood quite a childhood, safe childhood, that's why I left. Mikalenko says Igor the Clown made her son so happy, and today, for the first time, she feels like she's home again. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Chernovitsi, Ukraine. The movie Thor Love and Thunder opens in thousands of theaters this weekend. It is the latest adventure of Marvel's hammer-throwing, axe-wielding superhero. And the movie is expected to bring millions of patrons to cinemas that have been bustling in an almost pre-pandemic way lately. We asked critic Bob Mondello whether those viewers will be thoroughly entertained, and here's what he told us. Marvel movies come in all shapes and sizes. Thor Love and Thunder is for the crowd that likes children's stories. Kids, get the popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. That voice is Taika Waititi, who directed and who also voices Korg, Thor's made of rock pal. He's speaking to what's left of Thor's home kingdom of Asgard, now reduced to a sort of Scandinavian theme park, complete with Viking boat rides, kid-oriented superhero theater, and tourists who presumably couldn't afford Disney World. Thor, meanwhile, is off on another planet with Team Groot, who I'm guessing had some unbooked green screen time on the Guardians of the Galaxy set and wanted to plug Volume 3, which opens in a few months. You said this would be a relaxing holiday! I said it was going to be like a relaxing holiday. It's while they're relaxing in battle that Thor learns of a villain called the God Butcher. It's also where he acquires two giant screaming goats. Look at those! They are wonderful! Yes, they are. They also scream quite a lot. And that's funny for maybe 30 seconds, though they'll be screaming for the rest of the movie. Back at the theme park, the Asgardian kids get kidnapped by the God Butcher, and Thor puts together a rescue team that includes King Valkyrie, Korg, who's not quite wearing out his welcome yet, and Thor's ex... Judy Foster. Jane Foster. ...who has health issues, as played by Natalie Portman, and is using his old hammer for physical... therapy. When wielding the hammer, she's known a bit confusingly as the Mighty Thor. Happily, what she lacks in experience, she makes up for in enthusiasm, as when Thor says the kids are being held in the Shadow Realm... The atmosphere there has a darkness like no other. It's as if color fears to tread. It's unmistakable. Well, then, if it's color we need, let's bring the rainbow. And she crashes through the roof... Bring the rainbow, is that a catchphrase or something? She's only been a Thor for a minute. I mean, saving lives, she's quite good at, but the rest of it, she needs work. How many catchphrases have there been? A lot. And she's back. Yep, jump the gun. Hang on, he moves through shadows and he's going to the Shadow Realm. It seems like that's where he's going to be the most powerful. You're right, we can't just go marching in there. It could be a trap. Are you thinking what I think you're thinking? I'm thinking it. What are we thinking? Thinking what? Thinking it too. Omnipotency. Tongues planted so firmly in cheek they're practically coming out ears is an approach that served Waititi well when he directed Thor Ragnarok, and it's still amusing, though the realms around our heroes seem vaguely second tier this time. Blue-painted otherworldians mincing around in baby steps like superannuated Smurfs. You have finally joined our fight. Well, as they say, better late than not at all. Backgrounds that are the digital equivalent of spray-painted van art, monsters that look like projections once Team Thor gets to the Shadow Realm, where Christian Bale's justifiably bitter God Butcher... The only ones who gods care about is themselves. ...might as well be one of the witches in Joel Cohn's Tragedy of Macbeth. So this is my vow. 
Simple gods will die. Bale gets to actually emote, which gives him a few advantages over Chris Hemsworth's amiable but emotionally adolescent himbo, who's good at smashing things but should really take his cues from Tessa Thompson's understated Valkyrie. My, uh, sensing feelings? At least when it comes to Jane. <laughs> right. The goofiness in Thor Love and Thunder will doubtless be fine for fans, something Marvel can take to the bank. As for suspense, or thrills, grandeur, maybe a feeling that something might be in Thor mountable, that doesn't really seem to be the big guy's thing anymore. I'm Bob Mundell. It's been an eventful week for basketball star Brittany Griner, who's been held in Russia since February on drug charges. The White House said President Biden had spoken with her wife on Wednesday. The next day, she pleaded guilty in her trial. How Griner's case might play out from here, tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on All Things Considered, the survivor of a mass shooting in Illinois 34 years ago, who is now an FBI agent working for greater gun control measures in the U.S. Also, the release of a long-awaited report on Border Patrol agents' use of force against Haitian migrants last year. Both of those stories and more coming up here on WBUR. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny and cooler tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 84 degrees in Boston. The time is 429. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best. With local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Red'sBest.com. And Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now. Tickets at PEM.org. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden signed an executive order today to protect access to abortion while forcefully condemning the Supreme Court's decision that overturned the constitutional right after nearly 50 years, calling the ruling terrible and extreme. Biden instructed his administration to push back on efforts to limit the ability to access federally approved abortion medication or travel across state lines to access abortion services. This executive order directs the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, to ensure all patients, including pregnant women and girls, experiencing pregnancy loss, get emergency care they need under federal law, and that doctors have clear guidance on their own responsibilities and protections, no matter what the state, no matter what state they're in. Biden grew angry as he recounted a report of a 10-year-old girl raped in Ohio who had to travel to Indiana to terminate the pregnancy. He says 
It's now up to Congress to fully restore the right, urging Americans to vote in November to elect sympathetic candidates. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has significantly restricted the use of election drop boxes, which could have implications for the midterm elections this year. Mayan Silver of member station WUWM reports. The court ruled that absentee ballot drop boxes may be placed only in election offices and that no one other than the voter can return a ballot in person. It sided with conservatives who said there's no provision in Wisconsin law for the option. Democrats, election officials, and voting rights advocates say they're a secure and convenient way to vote. Dropboxes soared in popularity during the 2020 election. The new absentee ballot rules will be in effect for this midterm year, which is in part about whether to re-elect Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson and Democratic Governor Tony Evers. For NPR News, I'm Ayan Silver in Milwaukee. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The state's Department of Public Health is making a change to how often it reports out new COVID-19 case data. Starting next week, officials will release information on case numbers, hospitalizations, and infection rates once a week, down from the current five. An off-duty Providence police officer accused of punching a political rival at an abortion rights rally last month is pleading not guilty. Patrolman Jean Lugo is charged with simple assault and disorderly conduct. He dropped out of the political race for state Senate the day after the protest. He's now on paid leave from Providence Police. A group of Boston researchers is trying to protect the city from flooding using something it calls the Emerald Tutu. It's a system of circular mats covered in plants floating just offshore. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri explains by 2050, Boston could see nuisance flooding on about half the days each year thanks to climate change. The roughly seven-foot disks are biodegradable, with marsh grass growing above and seaweed below. They're also meant to be connected to each other. Lead scientist Julia Hopkins says that means waves have to push through multiple barriers of vegetation before reaching land. And all of that works together to take energy out of the wave because the wave is suddenly trying to get through a connected system that it wasn't anticipating. The goal of the system is to reduce flooding in particularly vulnerable areas, buying time for other climate adaptations. The researchers are testing the mats near Salem in Boston Harbor and have plans for a large-scale test next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Hannah Schnatry. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance, with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. In sports, Red Sox will host the Yankees for the second game of a four-game set at Fenway tonight. Connor Siebold gets the start for the Sox against Nestor Cortez for the Yankees. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with overnight lows in the mid-60s. All sunshine tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 84 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a Lyme probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We have spent much of this week talking about the immediate aftermath of another deadly mass shooting in America. The gunmen, the investigation, the missed signals, the victims. What there's been little time for is discussing how this shooting in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park, Illinois, will affect the community, the surviving family members, and those who are injured in the years to come. 34 years ago, there was another mass shooting just a few miles away at an elementary school in neighboring Winneka, Illinois. The gunwoman shot Phil Andrew after she fled the school. Now 54 years old, Andrew went on to become an FBI special agent specializing in negotiations and a lifelong gun control advocate. We spoke to him about how the experience shaped him, and we began our conversation by talking about the day that he was shot. I was a 20-year-old college student, happened to be the captain of the University of Illinois swimming team. So if you met me back in 1988, we would have been talking about swimming for sure. Yeah. And meanwhile, a, uh, a woman was planning an attack uh, on the community where she attacked the community with a cyanide gas device, which fortunately was a dud and did not affect the school that she tried to ignite that in. She set fire to a, a, a nearby home, uh, trapping a family and nearly killing them. And it culminated with her going into a elementary school in Winnetka, Illinois, and opening fire at point-blank range on six elementary school students, second graders. She killed one instantly and severely injured five others. In the course of her escape, she crashed her car and just happened into uh, my childhood home taking my mother, father, and I uh, hostage at gunpoint. And that was a hour and a half uh, negotiation. And uh, I managed to get my folks out, but was shot in an attempt to disarm her. And that was my really first introduction to uh, violence and gun violence. And uh, immediately, even before I, I was able to leave the hospital, I realized that, that my way forward was to make sure I would play a role in making sure that it wouldn't happen again. You know, in reading about your experience, I understand that this is something that made you, it made you want to be a helper. Tell us about that. What was that decision-making process like? Well, what it really did is, is shape my consciousness for how we really respond to those that are in distress. And um, one of the things that always stayed with me was that there were people there for me in the worst day of my life. There were amazingly heroic first responders who came to me at great risk to themselves, literally entering into a scene where they were putting themselves at risk to render aid to me. I came into contact with medical first responders, surgeons, doctors, and uh, nurses who put my interests, my recovery, my health above their own. And this kind of gift I was given of all the service they had provided really was giving me an opportunity, uh, because I survived, to take this tragedy and turn it into something positive. And the one thing that I recognized that we could focus on was trying to spare others this kind of misery. You know, it's 
It's quite remarkable that as someone who survived a violent crime such as you did, the end result was you wanting to help people and to come into a line of work that can put you in, in the line of danger. I, I imagine a lot of people would go the other way. They wouldn't want to be anywhere near that. Well, I don't know if there's a magic to it. I, I am the beneficiary of a lot of healthy systems. The incident that I was involved in took place just a few villages away from Highland Park, a well-resourced, well-connected area uh, with healthy police departments, with an amazing medical services, um, with an uh, intact family. And unfortunately, I think that, that a lot of what happens in our country, particularly around gun violence and in, and in certain areas, those systems, those healthy systems aren't there. Um, I'm lucky to have survived. And I think that the, the way the community responded was, it was a broad spectrum of responses, even really in our own house. There was a point at which a threatening phone call for the advocacy I was doing around gun violence prevention came to our phone number one day. And my mother took the call and she, she was unnerved. And she asked when we were gonna stop talking about what happened and what we could do to fix it. And that it was kind of an aha moment for us that it, my, my mother deeply wanted to see her family and her house and everything kind of return to normalcy. And I recognized that would never be again, mm. that we had experienced something and we would always be advocating and working to, to prevent it. Being m more than three decades removed, I, I wonder, when you think of the day of the shooting now, what do you think of? I think of the people. I think of the doctor who was in my face and told me to stay awake and somehow picked up that I was a swimmer and called me a swimmer and connected we with me and what I needed in that moment. I think of the nurse who looked into my eyes and said, you're going to be okay. I think of those children in the classroom that were doing exactly what they should have been doing that day, um, just going to school and getting ready for a bike safety test. And I think of their parents, and I think of that notion of safety being shattered in a way that's so unimaginable, and then still somehow turn back to try to let their children have the freedom to go outside and skin a knee and go have a play date at somebody else's house, that they really needed a significant amount of support to navigate that. And it is hard. And it's no time for people to be alone. And there is no reason why they, they shouldn't be able to find others who empathize deeply with what's taken place. And there is a robust and effective network to now get involved in to prevent this from happening again. And that is so critical in terms of, of my own journey to know that I'm having impact in the world around me in sparing others or supporting others who have been hurt, knowing that, that my experience and my own loss and suffering prepared me to do that for others. Phil Andrew is the principal of PAX Group, 
a former FBI special agent and the survivor of a mass shooter. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Thanks for having me, Juana. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Border Patrol agents on horseback who confronted Haitian migrants in Del Rio, Texas last year used, quote, unnecessary force. That is the conclusion of a long-awaited investigation released today by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Four Border Patrol agents are facing possible discipline over the incident. And joining us now with more details is NPR's Joel Rose, who covers immigration. Hi, Joel. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so I remember these images where we saw, like, Border Patrol agents on horseback chasing Haitian migrants. It sparked all kinds of outrage last year. Can you just remind us what was happening at the time? Sure. This was back in September of last year. Tens of thousands of migrants, mostly from Haiti, arrived very quickly in Del Rio, Texas, crowded into an enormous makeshift camp under an international bridge there. And that's when Border Patrol agents on horseback were photographed chasing migrants who were trying to return to this camp after buying supplies on the Mexican side of the river. And to many, it looked like the agents were using whips on the migrants, though current and former immigration officials say those were, in fact, the horse's reins. Administration officials promised an investigation would be completed within, quote, days, not weeks. Well, it's been almost nine months since then. What did this investigation find? First off, it found no evidence that the agents struck intentionally or otherwise any migrant with their reins. The report says this was a chaotic situation and that there were problems with command and control that led to this, quote, unnecessary use of force. Investigators say the Horse Patrol unit was carrying out an operation at the request of the Texas Department of Public Safety, trying to push these migrants back towards the Rio Grande River, which was at odds with the objectives of Border Patrol leaders who wanted the migrants to come back to the camp with food and water. But that said, the investigation does not totally exonerate these individual agents either. It accuses one agent in particular of using language denigrating a migrant's national origin and also getting too close to a migrant child with his horse. Here's CBP Commissioner Chris Magnus at a press conference today. There is no justification for the actions of some of our personnel, including unprofessional and deeply offensive conduct. Magnus said that four Border Patrol agents in total will face possible discipline, but he declined to go into details because that part of the process is still playing out. Okay, so what's been the initial reaction to all of this? Well, the union representing Border Patrol officers has been saying for months that that these agents did nothing wrong, but that investigators basically had no choice but to punish them for something because of the strong initial reaction from the White House and President Biden, who called the images, quote, outrageous and said those people will pay. Supporters of the Border Patrol are pointing out today that the U.S. attorney declined to press any criminal charges, and they see this report as an attempt to justify, you know, what they consider a hasty rush to judgment. Well, just to step back for a moment, Joel, we should say that this report is coming at a time when state leaders in Texas have been escalating their fight with the Biden administration over illegal immigration. And I'm just curious, did Chris Magnus at CBP have anything to say about that context? Yeah, he was asked about an executive order that was signed yesterday by Texas Governor Greg Abbott that directs state troopers and National Guardsmen to apprehend migrants who've crossed the border unlawfully and return them to ports of entry at the border. 
Normally, immigration is a federal matter, but Abbott says this is necessary because the Biden administration has failed to protect his state from a, quote, invasion. Immigrant advocates say it's ridiculous to compare migrants fleeing from poverty and violence to an invading army. And Chris Magnus says the administration is trying to build a safe immigration system, but when a state like Texas takes unilateral action, it makes it harder to do that. That is NPR's Joel Rose. Thanks so much, Joel. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, First Nations rapper Tasman Keith on his debut album and how he wants to use it to flip the conversations about his community coming up here on WBUR. This summer, Circle Round, WBUR's storytelling podcast for the young and young at heart, is coming to a page and stage near you. Join me, Rebecca Shear, on Saturday at WBUR City Space in Boston for a party celebrating two new Circle Round picture books. Plus, we're keeping the party going all summer long with live storytelling events at bookstores and museums across New England. Find tickets and more information at WBUR.org slash Circle Round. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny skies, mostly cloudy skies, rather, tonight. Lows dropping to the mid-60s, mostly sunny and cooler tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Sunday, more sunshine, highs in the upper 70s. Monday, still sunny, mid-80s. And Tuesday, sunny and hot with highs in the low 90s. Right now, it is 84 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations, full bar, and live music Fridays, tapas529.com. MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com slash careers. And Gloucester Stage, presenting Between the Sheets, a new play about Edith Wharton's love affair. Between the Sheets, July 1st to 24th. Tickets at gloucesterstage.com. President Biden and his team are thinking, we are told, about lifting some of those Trump-era tariffs. People who work in customs and logistics are prepping their teams, too. I had to tell them, please don't be so efficient. (laughs) Please clear the shipments that are coming from China a little bit closer to the actual arrival time. I'm Kai Rizdal. Tariff Talks, next time on Marketplace. That's Marketplace, weeknights at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. In rural eastern Australia, along a winding river, is a tiny town with a hard history and a thriving hip-hop scene. Bowraville is a mission, an indigenous community established in the 19th century to be deliberately separate from the white population. Post-colonization, government and you know, churches use for missions. As, as a place to segregate and try to uh, whitewash our history. Tasman Keith grew up in Bowerville. He's a rapper, just like his dad before him. And his music tries to make sense of the history wrapped around his home and his community. Over time, the place that is the mission uh, is now a place of, of pride and, and something that we've kind of claimed as like, you know, all of our families here, so let's, let's enjoy that. Desire, 
Our co-host Ari Shapiro caught up with Keith to hear about his new album, A Color Undone, which is out today. What role does hip-hop play in turning a place of oppression and division into a place of community and pride? I think it just has the role of giving us a voice uh, in a country where we pretty much voiceless for the longest amount of time. I think that's definitely why a lot of us turn to hip hop or music in general, because it's really just our, our way of, I guess, speaking our opinion and, and changing what needs to be changed through music. There's a track on this album called Proud. Does that speak to some of what we're talking about here? Yeah, for sure. And also just speaks on, you know, sometimes I feel like being born as a person of color and indigenous, there's this pressure of you to do it for many reasons that, you know, you kind of just get thrown into. And I feel like before you you do that, it is very important just to make sure with inside yourself that you are okay to do that. So for me, it's like making sure that I'm good and I'm in a position where I am understanding of my things personally, understanding of my community, and also understanding of the outside world and the lack of knowledge they have and, and coming to it with that point of view. This is your inheritance. And when I say that, I don't just mean the history you're inheriting. I also mean you're the son of a rapper. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I am. It's 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 wild. It's something that uh I grew up thinking was totally normal, to be honest. Um <laughs> it was just it was just a normal thing for me, you know. I'd grow up at eight, nine, ten years old, being on stage with my father. You know, him and him and my mum were split for quite a few years. So he'd have us every second weekend and sometimes we'd have shows at the same time and he'd be like, okay, well, I've got to put my sons on stage with me. And that's how he would take care of us. What role did you see that playing in his life that you thought later, well, maybe this could do the same thing for me? I think it was, you know, again, just the freedom of having a voice and doing what you love. And, you know, my dad was doing it in a time where I think Australia wasn't necessarily ready for some of the things he was saying. Hmm. Um, therefore, I, I did see him, you know, being quite broke and in poverty. And then some weeks it would be the complete opposite because of, of a payday from a show. But regardless, he still did it for the love of music and creativity. Do you think Australia is ready for the things that you're saying now, a generation later? I believe so. I think, you know, what my father has taught me was like, I don't tend to point the finger. Hmm. It's from a place of understanding, um, from a place that, you know, at the end of the day, everybody is all human and we all do have a lack of knowledge that we can, you know, expand on. Is there some place on this album that you can point to where we see you taking that approach? Less the finger point, more the shared humanity? I'd say Tread Light. I'd say the last song where it's, it's speaking on a topic that everybody experiences, you know, without even saying, which is death. And it's me just speaking on on death through the scope of my experience. Did I envision my demise every time I thought of death? I know my mama worried, I know my father distressed, but I just need a reason to see, see where the level head. At times I look to you in these moments that I neglect. If you don't mind my asking, um, you've had a lot of experience with death, right? I mean, like, you've lost a lot of people close to you. Yeah. That's got to be a burden to carry. It's, it is a lot, um, you know, there's been there's been a stage where in one year of my life it's been like 13 family members the gift and the curse of being from such a small and connected community but a big family is just that 
um, there's definitely still issues of, you know, health issues, heart issues that we face as a community. And for me, I was always kind of pushing it to the side with work, work, work. And it wasn't until I, I guess, sat with myself and gained clarity on myself that I was able to see what I haven't dealt with just yet. Is rapping kind of a coping mechanism in a way? Yeah, definitely. Rapping and songwriting. But sometimes I think me always relying on that can be quite detrimental um, and thinking that, you know, that's the only way to, to deal with it. So much of what you're talking about in the context of a First Nations experience in Australia seems to echo what American rappers have been doing from like the earliest days of hip hop, using their art to confront struggle and trauma and racism. How connected do you feel to that history on the other side of the world? I feel so connected, man. I grew up listening to all of that, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> me, me, my cousins, my dad, my uncles. I remember growing up and the first hip hop joint I heard was Easy E and I was in the car with my uncles. Like we have two buck CDs literally on, you know, my uncle's gravesite. Like it is, it is a lot in our community. And so what's it like having made it big in Australia now to have these tracks heard by an American audience, by the American hip hop fans who are listening to the same albums you were listening to when you were a kid? It's beautiful because like it's the mecca of hip hop, you know what I mean? Like New York, like it's, it's, it's somewhere where for a lot of my life, I've definitely gained everything that I have and I've grown to have through hip hop. And I'm definitely aware and thankful of that. Oh no, oh no. Coming back to you, it's like I'm coming home. Knowing that your uncle, who was such a big hip hop fan, did not survive, knowing that your father as a rapper never made it to the level that you've now made it, do you feel a pressure? Does the success that you're experiencing come with sort of, I don't know, people hovering over your shoulders? No, nah, I think I, I feel the pride instead. And I definitely feel it when I go back home and, you know, they just say to me, keep going, like you're, you're, you're representing us. And they don't even put the pressure on like, you need to do this for us. They're just like, be yourself and, you know, everything else will follow. It grounds me for a second, you know, I can go back and see my 12 year old sister and she doesn't care about the music I'm making. You know they're taking so you like, down a notch. They're not carrying yeah. you on their shoulders. They are bringing you down to size. Yeah, they're like, just remember, you ain't no different. And, and I, I strongly agree. Tasman Keith's new album is called A Color Undone. Congratulations, it's been great talking to you. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Oh no, oh no. Coming back to you, it's like I'm coming home. Falling into you, it's like some dominoes. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is WBUR online at WBUR.org.
Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, the support group in Florida specifically for children who have lost a parent. That story and more coming up here on WBUR. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight, overnight lows in the mid-60s. All sunshine tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 85 degrees in Boston. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An assassin guns down former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe using an apparently homemade firearm in a country where gun violence is exceedingly rare. It's Friday, July 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars, coming off remembering the 67-year-old Abe, who was Japan's longest-serving post-war leader. Also, why experts don't expect a resurgence of coal, despite last week's Supreme Court decision limiting the federal government's power to limit carbon emissions from power plants. In terms of how much this impacts the amount of coal that we're going to burn, probably not very much at all, really. And President Biden moves to limit states' power to prevent people from crossing state lines to get an abortion. It's 5.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden has signed an executive order to take incremental steps to protect access to abortion services. NPR's Barbara Sprott reports this comes two weeks after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The executive order is aimed at safeguarding access to medication abortion and emergency contraception, protecting patient privacy, and bolstering the legal options available to those seeking and providing abortion services. But Biden stressed it will take political change to fully restore abortion rights, urging men and women to elect two additional Democratic senators in the midterm elections. We cannot allow an out-of-control Supreme Court, working in conjunction with extremist elements of the Republican Party, to take away freedoms and our personal autonomy. Biden warned that should Republicans take control of Congress, they could try to enact a national ban on abortion. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. U.S. government buildings are flying flags at half-staff today in honor of assassinated former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He was speaking at a rally near Osaka when he was shot. NPR's Jackie Northam reports police in Japan say the suspect used a foot-long homemade gun. Japanese police say that 41-year-old Tetsuya Yamagami fired two shots at Abe as he was making a political speech in the city of Nara. The first shot missed the former prime minister. The second round hit his chest and neck. Abe collapsed, and despite attempts to revive him, he died several hours later. Yamagami was unemployed and a former member of Japan's Maritime Self-Defense Force for three years. Police say he attacked Abe because he believed he was associated with a group Yamagami hated. Multiple handguns were later found at Yamagami's home. The assassination has stunned Japan, a nation which has stringent gun laws and low crime rates. Jackie Northam, NPR News. 
In the aftermath of a wave of mass shootings in the U.S., a new NPR Ipsos poll shows strong support among gun owners in the U.S. for several gun control measures. NPR's Eric Westervelt has details. The majority of gun owners in this NPR Ipsos poll say they are in favor of some key, if relatively modest, gun control measures, including universal background checks. That includes checks at gun shows and for private gun sales. The poll showed very strong support among all gun owners for raising the minimum age to buy any kind of gun from 18 to 21. Uh, and it showed gun owners overwhelmingly back, you know, what are called red flag laws. So police can take away guns from people a judge has ruled too dangerous to, to have a firearm. NPR's Eric Westervelt, a mixed day on Wall Street. The Dow and S&P closed slightly down. The Nasdaq slightly up. The S&P closed out the week overall up. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Abortion rights advocates are applauding President Biden's executive order today that calls for the federal government to ensure medication abortion is widely accessible. It also calls on the federal government to convene lawyers who can help abortion providers and those seeking abortions navigate new restrictions in many states. Nate Horowitz-Willis is a vice president at Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts. It's a great first step because, you know, with this administration, it's taking steps to make medication abortion more available. Um, so many people, they still don't know that that's an option, and we want to make sure that folks are getting the best information about the rights and options. President Biden says further protections would require Congress to pass new legislation. The head of the nonprofit Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation is supporting the legislature's plan that would give some taxpayers a one-time refund. However, Eileen McEnany says she thinks there should be other forms of tax relief as well. What the legislature put forth, the $250 in checks, is one piece of a larger puzzle. I'd like to see what the other components are to see if there is some balance that's achieved. There are minimum and maximum income restrictions on the refund plan. McEnany would like to see the legislature include estate tax reforms in a comprehensive tax reform package. The highest court in Massachusetts will review a proposal to discipline three former state prosecutors. The Board of Bar Overseers recommends disbarring a former assistant attorney general and suspending the law licenses of two others in a state drug lab scandal. The board proposed the punishment after defense attorneys found a lab chemist used drugs she was supposed to be testing for longer than prosecutors claimed. The discovery led to the dismissal of thousands of criminal cases. Two passengers are in the hospital after a small private plane crash this afternoon in Portland, Maine. Portland police say the plane crashed at the Portland jet port, forcing it to close for some time. The primary runway reopened within the last half hour. Several flights had to be diverted. Three came to Logan Airport, while one each went to Manchester and Providence. The average price of gasoline in the state continues to drop. AAA Northeast says the state average is of 4.78 is down 11 cents from a week ago and down 24 cents in the past month. In sports, Red Sox will host the Yankees over at Fenway tonight with Connor Siebold getting the start. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s, mostly sunny and cooler tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 85 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. There have been a lot of clouds on the economic horizon, but the sun broke through this morning with a better-than-expected jobs report. U.S. employers added 372,000 jobs last month. That is a lot more than analysts were predicting. And at the White House, President Biden took a moment to celebrate an economic milestone. Our private sector has now recovered all of the jobs lost during the pandemic and added jobs on top of that. We have more Americans working today in the private sector than any day under my predecessor, more today than any time in American history. Employers continue to hire workers at a rapid rate, despite signs that the U.S. economy is slowing down. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hi. So there has been a lot of talk lately about a possible recession around the corner, but that does not appear to be weighing on the job market. So what's going on? Yeah, employers just keep on hiring, uh, despite concerns about high inflation and waning economic growth. Uh, Job growth has slowed a little bit from the beginning of the year when employers were adding about half a million jobs every month. But 372,000 jobs is still a really strong figure, especially when unemployment's already very low, just 3.6%. Now, we are seeing some shifts in the kinds of jobs that are being added. Uh, Construction hiring, for example, slowed last month as rising interest rates take a bite out of the home building business. But factories are still adding a lot of jobs. Bars and restaurants continue to staff up. The travel industry is adding workers. One weak spot continues to be government jobs. Even though the private sector employment's back to pre-pandemic levels, government is still down by about 660,000 jobs compared to February of 2020. So that's jobs, but tell us what's happening with wages right now. Wages are continuing to climb. Uh, They're not rising as fast as they were last year, though, and they are not keeping up with inflation. Uh, Average hourly wages in June were up 5.1% from last year. We know prices are climbing a good bit faster than that. That's eating away at people's purchasing power, which is why so many people feel gloomy about this economy. Inflation has also been a real drag on President Biden's approval rating. Now, look, I know times are tough. Prices are too high. Families are facing the cost of the living crunch. But today's economic news confirms the fact that my economic plan is moving this country in a better direction. Of course, most of the president's economic plan has still stalled in Congress. Uh, Biden did note that gasoline prices have been coming down. Uh, The average price dropped almost 30 cents a gallon from the record high last month. That's mostly a result of supply and demand, though, not government policy. Uh, Domestic oil production has ticked up a bit, and oil and natural gas companies actually added about 2,000 jobs last month. So even with a little dip in gas prices, inflation is still a big problem, and the Federal Reserve is trying to get prices under control. Is today's jobs report likely to change the Fed's calculation? Probably not. Uh, The central bank has started raising interest rates pretty aggressively in an effort to tamp down demand and curb inflation. There are elements of this jobs report that inflation watchdogs the central bank might take some comfort in. There are other parts they might find worrisome. Overall, though, the job market is still tighter than the Fed would like, and as a result, the central bank's likely to keep on raising interest rates, possibly by another three-quarters of a percentage point when policymakers meet later this month. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. The policies of Japan's longest-serving prime minister, Shinzo Abe, were highly controversial, both at home and throughout Asia. 
But that did not lessen the shock and the mourning after his sudden death, nor will it erase his lasting impact on Japan's politics and Asia's geopolitics. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has this report from Seoul. Abe was giving a stump speech for a candidate in western Japan's Nara City ahead of parliamentary elections on Sunday. A man approached him from behind with what appeared to be an improvised firearm. Then two shots rang out. Abe was rushed to a hospital. Doctors failed to stop the bleeding and Abe was pronounced dead around 5 p.m. local time. Police arrested a 41-year-old Nara resident named Tetsuya Yamagami, who had served in Japan's military. Police say he confessed to the crime. He denied that it was politically motivated, but his exact motives remain unclear. In Tokyo, a visibly shaken Prime Minister Fumio Kishida spoke to reporters. I'm not aware of the background of this act, but it took place during an election, which makes it an attack on the core of democracy, he said. It's a contemptible act of barbarism and cannot be tolerated. The shock reverberated around Japan. One Kyoto resident surnamed Shimizu said he felt things were moving backward in the country. Maybe such a thing is normal in the U.S., but this took place in Japan, and I am shocked. Another resident surnamed Otake said she had expected that something like this could happen to Abe. I think that various problems that Japan has now were brought about during his administration, she said. I'm against Abe. Koichi Nakano, a political scientist at Sophia University in Tokyo, notes that there's little gun crime in Japan, and there hasn't been much political violence in Japan for more than half a century. I think the national mood is really a shock and horror, uh, in part because this kind of uh, violent incident is rare in general. Abe's influence has lasted well beyond his eight years and two terms as prime minister ending in 2020. His successors have largely stuck to Abe's policies, says Tobias Harris, the author of a book on Abe. He laid out a blueprint that I think it has been hard for his two successors to uh, deviate from, and I, and I think will continue to basically be the blueprint that his successors will, will have to follow. Another part of the blueprint is Abenomics, which aimed to jumpstart Japan's ailing economy after decades of stagnation. On the security front, says Koichi Nakano, Abe's policies paved the way for Japan's role alongside the U.S. in confronting China. He was at the forefront of pushing for the increased militarization of Japan in the context of U.S.-Japan Security Alliance. In order to promote and protect Japan's national interests, Abe took pains to cultivate close ties with U.S. presidents, including Donald Trump, with whom he bonded over Wagyu burgers, sumo wrestling, and golf. Trump welcomed Abe to the White House in 2017. I shook hands, but I grabbed him and hugged him because that's the way we feel. We have a very, very good bond. Abe's overall vision called for taking Japan back and reclaiming its position as Asia's leading power. He referred to it in a 2019 speech in Davos, Switzerland. It is the dawn of a new era. Japan now reinvigorated and revitalized. But Tobias Harris argues that Abe was mostly just using nostalgia as a political tool. His real aim, Harris says, wasn't just recreating the past. It was actually trying to make a new Japan. Not always successfully, not always something that was, I think, politically popular. But I think we should think of his project like that. 
But until the shock and mourning at Abe's assassination wind down, a fuller debate about Abe's triumphs and failures may have to wait. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its first major ruling on climate regulations in years. Conservative judges sided with coal companies over the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate power plants. But as NPR's Laura Benshoff reports, that decision is unlikely to reverse coal's power decline. The state of North Dakota is rich with a kind of soft brown coal called lignite. That coal is burned to make electricity, which the state sells to its neighbors, including Canada. Special Assistant Attorney General Paul Seabee says that's why, way back in 2015, North Dakota sued the EPA over President Obama's key climate change policy. The Clean Power Plan had assumptions of shutdown dates well before those plants would have been retired or will be retired. So EPA was forcing conversion from coal-based generation. The goal of the plan was to reduce carbon emissions. At the time, power generation was the biggest source of U.S. carbon pollution. But North Dakota argued the move would be economically devastating. It would have impaired North Dakota dramatically. But since then, coal plants keep shutting down. In 2019, coal electricity generated in the U.S. hit a 42-year low, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Natalie Biggs, global head of thermal coal markets for the research firm Wood McKenzie, says the main culprit wasn't regulation. The development of fracking technologies and very cheap natural gas production in the U.S. played a much larger role in the decline of coal generation than environmental policies. Natural gas, which emits about half the CO2 coal does when burned, got so cheap that it drove coal plants out of business. Even so, when it looked like the federal government, now under President Biden, might try something like the clean power plan again, the lawsuits restarted. That's what landed in the Supreme Court. Just last week, the conservative majority ruled the EPA could not force coal out of business. But Taylor Kirkendall with S&P Global Commodity Insights says that's unlikely to change the trend. In terms of how much this impacts the amount of coal that we're going to burn, uh, probably not very much at all, really. Over the last couple of years, natural gas prices rose, making coal power more attractive again. But both Kirkendall and Biggs say that's probably a blip, not a new trend. As a result, many of the people who fought the case talk about the win in ideological terms, a win for states' rights, more than economic ones. Here's North Dakota's attorney, Paul C.B. again. The court recognized the cooperative federalism aspect of how that statute was written and um, that EPA can't just take that away. North Dakota still burns a lot of coal to make electricity. But CB points out that wind energy, fueled by gusts crossing the Great Plains, is right behind it. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiaris. Coming up on All Things Considered, the program in Florida set up specifically to support children who have lost a parent. In business news, a cannabis delivery company says it expects to open a new location serving Dorchester and Roxbury next year. 
En route home deliveries already secured most of its needed paperwork and is just waiting on final approval from the Cannabis Control Commission. It expects to bring 40 jobs to Blue Hill Ave when it opens. On Wall Street, there was little change for the markets today. Dow was down 46 points at 31,338. Nasdaq rose 13 points. The S&P 500 fell 3 points. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ollie at UMass Boston, now offering free summer programs for older adults over 50. More at umb.edu slash O-L-L-I. Remember coming to City Space on Saturday, July 16th, The Crossword Show, a live comedy event hosted by actor, TV writer, and comedian Zach Sherwin. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. In sports, Red Sox will host the Yankees for the second game of a four-game set at Fenway tonight. Forecast says mostly cloudy skies for that game, lows dropping to the mid-60s. All sunshine tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 85 degrees in Boston at 520. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Crosstrek, an SUV with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and an available 182 horsepower engine. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru and from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. If there is one thing we all have in common, it's grief. At one point or another, everyone has to deal with the death of a loved one. And when this happens to children, psychologists will tell you that the pain and the isolation of grieving can have a profound impact on their lives. Just in the last two years, a recent study estimates that more than 200,000 children in the U.S. experienced the death of a parent or a primary caregiver from COVID-19. And yet, there is very little support for kids dealing with this loss. But as NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports, a high school in Florida has been trying to change that. 14-year-old Elizabeth George grew up in a tight-knit family. So when her parents got COVID last August, she stepped up to take care of them. So I was like running the house sort of um i was giving the medicine seeing if like everyone was okay elizabeth's mother recovered but her father didn't he was taken to the hospital and he was there for like almost a month he died due to complications from covid 19. elizabeth's entire world was turned upside down her father had been the central pillar of the family he was a very outgoing person you know in any like activity with our family and our church. He was always like the person that um, you can rely on. Unlike her father, Elizabeth is shy. She's always preferred staying at home than going to school. But after her father died, she didn't want to leave her house at all. And returning to school felt especially hard. It felt surreal because like a few weeks ago, My father passed away and here I am back to normal at school. Like what? Like how even? Elizabeth is a student at Atlantic Community High in Palm Beach County. She'd always been really good at school, but after her father died, she just couldn't focus anymore. 
and she found herself feeling alone and isolated in the middle of a crisis. A few weeks into like me going back to school, I had like a meltdown at school. I was having a bad day. She was supposed to meet with a school counselor that day, but she was so flustered she ended up in the wrong room. And that's where she bumped into a teacher named Corey Walls. She's like, hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm okay. She's like, are you sure? And then, I don't know, all of a sudden, like, I started crying. And so we went to a room and we, like, talked things out. Corey told Elizabeth she understood because she too had lost her father when she was young. A loss that haunted her her entire childhood. And when she was a teenager, her pain became more pronounced. I remember at my eighth grade graduation, um, it was significant that my father wasn't there. The same feelings happened again when I was a senior in high school. I went back to visit his grave. And that's when grief, like, smacked me in the face. Corey felt alone in her agony. Neither her family nor anyone at school could help her process her grief. So when she became a teacher years later, she paid attention when a student told her they'd lost a parent. When I first walked into the classroom, my first period class, I had four students that I met that had lost a parent. And I immediately could identify and understand what they've gone through and what they were dealing with. She began keeping track of these students. She had an open-door policy with them. They could come talk to her about anything. But in 2019, she had 10 students grieving the loss of a parent, and she realized she had to do more. So she launched an after-school grief support program and named it Steve's Club after her father. What I envisioned, I envisioned kids just getting together and sharing their story and being there for each other and knowing that somebody else understands how they feel. It's exactly the kind of place that Elizabeth needed after her father died. On this day, she's among a dozen students from across the school meeting in a classroom. Students whose parents died due to everything from COVID to stroke to even suicide. As they walk in, they head for the pizza in the back of the room, then chit-chat, joking with each other between bites. All right, guys, we'll get started in like a few minutes. But as Corey Wald starts the meeting, everyone becomes quiet. I want you to um, say who you are and who you're here to remember and uh, let us know how you feel. My name's Martina. I'm here to remember my dad, and I'm okay. I'm Luca, and I'm here to remember my mom, and I'm doing pretty good. I'm Elizabeth. I'm here to remember my dad, and I'm doing good. Also in the room is Felice Jules, a family therapist with Palm Beach Youth Services. She's here to provide grief counseling. So denial is the first stage of grief, right? Felice, too, lost her mother when she was 12, but she says she remained in denial for nearly a decade. But it took me that long. To myself, this is a reality that I needed to live with. Felice then opens the door for the students to reflect on their own experiences. Sitting right next to her is a tall, lanky 16-year-old. He talks about the depths of his depression after his mother died four years ago. And what went to my head during that period of time was like, I, I want to see my mom again. So like, the only option was like suicide, if I can say. Suicide, not an easy thing to talk about, but it's clear that with her warm smile and no-nonsense manner, Corey Waltz has created a space where students feel comfortable sharing their darkest moments. Elizabeth George doesn't say much at the meeting, but the club has made her feel less isolated. Now I know like there's someone I can talk to that can understand. That understanding helps these kids start to heal. And when they do, they want to see their family heal as well. 
On this particular day, one of the students, Luca Peace, has brought her father with her. I wanted him to see what it was like to get some sort of help and, you know, some therapeutic experience to make you like feel better and more understood. Luca's 14. Her mother died by suicide back in 2016. Her father, Eric, a tall, broad-shouldered man, sits quietly in the back of the room. After the meeting, he tells me he worries about the stigma of mental illness and has tried to cope with his wife's death by staying busy. Taking care of the, the three kids is pretty demanding and trying to work full-time. How are you doing? I'm good. <laughs> Even after all these years, his grief is raw. His daughter sits next to him, holding his hand, comforting him as he breaks down. Eric says he doesn't talk about his grief with anyone. Uh, I'm not a huge fan, personally. <laughs> yeah, talking about your feelings. but uh, He's happy to see his daughter's generation opening up. Just absolutely wonderful for the kids just to, you know, sit down and talk about their feelings. I you know if, if I was to do that in my school, I would have got beat up. <laughs> so... It's, it's really, really nice. And he sees how much it's helped Luca, how much happier she is. Later, Corey Waltz tells me how the other students reacted to watching Luca and her father. Instead of being immature and, you know, look at him crying and stuff, they, they were like, our heart's breaking right now. I was, I was really proud of them because they were like, Luca's so strong. Look at Lu Luca holding her dad's hand and her dad was melting. Waltz says it was a defining moment for her. That moment yesterday was like, yes, I'm doing the right thing because I know that these kids are getting it, that my kids understand the grief, they understand it's real, and they respect other people's situations. And they now have a special group of friends that they know will always have their back. And it's all based on their loss. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. If you or a loved one is in crisis, you can call or text the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the President's limited executive order today protecting abortion rights. Also, the controversy in San Diego, as some police officers there argue that regular COVID tests for unvaccinated members of the force violate their religious beliefs. That's all coming up. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s. Right now, 85 degrees in Boston at 529. WBUR supporters include the New Bedford Whaling Museum, Art, History, Science, and Culture Museum. Come experience the spirit of the South Coast. Visit whalingmuseum.org to learn more. And Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, legendary MC Del the Funky Homo Sapien reveals how he trained his voice to become a giant of hip-hop. <laughs> Blow me down. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for a whole hour of pirate radio on this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Two U.S. senators who visited Ukraine this week say they will continue efforts to pass a resolution designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. NPR's Emily Fang has more. 
Richard Blumenthal, the Democratic Senator from Connecticut, and Lindsey Graham, Republican Senator from South Carolina, traveled to Kyiv to meet with Ukraine's president. The senators vowed on their visit to push through a Senate resolution they introduced in May. That resolution seeks to designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, putting it on the same list as North Korea and Iran. NPR's Emily Fang, the U.S. is sending another $400 million in military equipment to Ukraine, including four more advanced rocket systems to bolster efforts to strike deeper behind Russian front lines in eastern Ukraine. That aid comes as Moscow this week claimed control of another province in the Donbass region. Dozens of lawmakers in the United Kingdom are lining up to replace outgoing Brit British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. As NPR's Frank Langford tells us, Johnson was plagued by a series of scandals during his tenure. At least four conservative members of parliament are already running. They include Rishi Sunak, former chancellor of the Exchequer, whose resignation earlier this week helped topple Johnson. Tom Tugendhat, chair of the parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, who's an Afghan and Iraq war veteran. Suella Braverman, the Attorney General for England and Wales, and former Brexit Minister Steve Baker. More candidates are expected. Conservative parliamentarians will try to winnow the field down to two, will then face off in a vote of Conservative Party members across the country. There's no clear favorite in this race. And whoever wins faces many challenges, including record inflation and an overstretched National Health Service. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Stocks finished mixed to end the week on Wall Street after a surprisingly strong jobs report for June. This is NPR. A Swiss court has acquitted former FIFA president Sepp Blatter of corruption charges, also acquitting the former union head of the European Football Association. From Geneva, Lisa Schlein reports. The judges acquitted Blatter of making unlawful payment of $2 million to former French football legend Platini. Blatter was up for re-election as president of FIFA in 2011 when the payment was made. Prosecutors claimed the money was a bribe to gain Platini's support. Both men denied the charges and said the payment was salary owed Platini for work done over several years. The Swiss judges agreed. They said they found no proof of wrongdoing and cleared the men of all charges. Blatter and Platini were awarded trial costs of $80,000 and $140,000 respectively. Platini said he was happy justice finally had been done after seven years of what he called lies and manipulation. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva. The Labor Department reported stronger than expected job growth in June despite concerns about rising interest rates to bring inflation under control. U.S. employers added 372,000 jobs. That's about 100,000 more than economists had forecast. Employment in the private sector has now fully recovered to pre-pandemic levels. Stocks finished mixed to end the week on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The MBTA is suspending train service on part of the Green Line's C branch for the next two weeks. Starting Monday, shuttle buses will run in its place between Kenmore and Cleveland Circle to make way for construction and system upgrades. Comes after a closure of part of the B branch for similar work last month. Local groups and political leaders are reacting to the assassination of the former Prime Minister of Japan. The executive director of the Rice Hour Institute of Japanese Studies at Harvard says the assassination of Shinzo Abe is a great shock to the community. Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal says it is a terrible tragedy and calls Abe a devoted public servant.
The Consulate General of Japan in Boston will be offering a condolence book Monday and Tuesday for the Japanese community to sign. The city of Boston's reopened a park in Dorchester. Today, Mayor Michelle Wu attended a ribbon-cutting to mark the completion of a $7 million renovation of McConnell Park in Savin Hill. The park was flooded twice by nor'easters in 2018. New features include a larger flood wall barrier, better stormwater management, and raised portions of the site to make the park more resilient to climate change. The park also has new athletic facilities and better accessibility. In sports, Red Sox will host the Yankees for the second game of a four-game set over at Fenway tonight. Connor Siebold getting the start. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s. All sunshine tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 86 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jones Day an integrated partnership collaboratively providing legal services for more than a century. 43 offices, five continents, serving clients as one firm worldwide. Learn more at jonesday.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden signed an executive order on abortion access today, but he stressed that only political change could restore the rights removed when the Supreme Court upended Roe v. Wade. Speaking today in the Roosevelt Room, Biden criticized Republican lawmakers, state legislators, and conservative justices as extremists. So what we're witnessing wasn't a constitutional judgment. It was an exercise in raw political power. Well, joining us now to talk about what is in this executive order is Kim Mutcherson, a dean and professor of law at Rutgers University, where she specializes in reproductive justice. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. So can you just very briefly explain what does this order say? Uh, Not very much, (laughs) so I can briefly explain it. You know, it basically lays out a plan for people to keep talking about things that they might be able to do. Um, So the language is very vague. Um, You know, it's directing the Department of Health and Human Services to consider a bunch of things, right? How do you expand access to medication abortion, making sure that there's access to contraception, you know, all of these things. And yet so much of it is just, let's consider this, let's consider this, let's consider that. And I think part of why I am having a really negative reaction to it Mm -hmm. is it makes me think, what have they been doing, right? I mean, the Dobbs opinion was leaked a few months ago. A bunch of senators wrote to them in early June. I think, let me say, the June 7th was the letter that Elizabeth Warren and others sent to say, look, the administration needs to be thinking and needs to step up to the plate here. Um, and yet, given the opportunity to issue an executive order, it's about as milquetoast as you could be, even down to the fact that they barely use the word abortion in it. At least nine states now have banned abortion so far since this Supreme Court ruling came down. For people in those states specifically, does this executive order change anything for them? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And, you know, even the way that this order is written and the generality of this order makes me feel like, you know, this administration isn't willing 
to fight. And that, I think, is really problematic. So what does that fight look like to you? I mean, you said earlier in this conversation, what has the administration been doing this whole time? Are there any other tools Biden should be employing right now? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, some folks have talked about is the idea of declaring a public health emergency in relationship um, to abortion, which frees up some resources, not a ton. But what it also would allow this this administration to do is to genuinely increase access um, to medication abortion, which is, again, going to be a huge deal in a post-Roe world. And so, you know, not willing to be able to do the public health emergency, um, not being willing to think in really concrete ways about how abortion could be provided on federal lands, not talking in really serious ways ways about even people who are already in the military, how their access to abortion services are curtailed. Mm -hmm. You know, what about people who are incarcerated in states that have bans in place? There's so much to be thought about here. They should have been thinking about these things for months. And instead, they're now telling us, now we're going to start really thinking Mm -hmm. about these issues. And that, that really signals to me that they are not putting the kind of effort into protecting abortion access that a lot of us voted for. That is Kim Mutcherson, a dean and professor of law at Rutgers University. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. There is a new name on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list, Ruja Ignatova, known as the Crypto Queen. It is a story of international fraud at a scale rarely seen. Here's Amanda Aronchik from our Planet Money podcast. The FBI's 10 most wanted list is a very big deal. It's basically a giant publicity stunt, a way to get people like me, who work in the media, to file stories like this one. Here's the FBI. Our hope is that naming her to the top 10 most wanted fugitive list will draw attention to her and her alleged crimes. I was as surprised as anybody. Jamie Bartlett has been trying to find Ignatova for the past three and a half years. He's the author of the Missing Crypto Queen podcast and book. He's also been wondering, why is the FBI making this announcement now? The fraud itself began years ago. Ruja Ignatova is a German-Bulgarian businesswoman who arrived in 2014, out of nowhere really, and told the world she'd created the next Bitcoin. She called it OneCoin. Her team made slick videos promising that buying OneCoin was a way to ride the crypto wave for people who didn't understand crypto. Word spread, reaching people in 175 countries. In 2016, Ignatova could pack a stadium. Let's give a warm applause for our creator, our founder, our lovely Dr. Rujam. Applause, please. Actual fire shoots up from the stage. Then out walks this woman. She's wearing a floor-length red ball gown. At the time, she had full lips, dark brown eyes, and long flowing black hair. She makes her pitch. One coin is easy to use. One coin is for everyone. Make payments everywhere, everyone, globally. OneCoin spread using multi-level marketing tactics, where friends tell friends who tell friends about exciting new products to invest in. I first heard about OneCoin in 2016, and that was through an introduction of a family friend who was very close to me. 
Leila Begum Ali lives in London, and she's part of the Bangladeshi community there. This family friend invited her to a one-coin networking event at a hotel. By going there, I saw so many other people, very professional-looking, lots of Muslims, lots of women like me. And she thought, here are my people, talking about the second homes they'd bought, the money they'd made. So she invested her savings, around $70,000 worth. Within months, things did not seem right. On the OneCoin website, she couldn't see her investment. No one would answer her questions. She went back to the family friend. I started making noises and approaching him and saying, look, this is a scam. You need to give me my money back. This is my 20 years life saving. Give me my money back. But her money was gone, along with the investments of around a million other people. Author Jamie Bartlett calculates that only about 1% to 5% of the very top tier of the OneCoin scheme made any money. And the rest, the 95% of everybody else, they lost billions of dollars. The whole thing is essentially a, a, an old-fashioned pyramid scheme with a cryptocurrency cherry on the top. OneCoin wasn't a cryptocurrency at all. It didn't even have a functioning blockchain. Since that was revealed, some of Ignatova's associates have been arrested, including her brother. But in 2017, Ruja Ignatova apparently got a lot of plastic surgery done. She boarded a flight from Bulgaria to Greece and disappeared. Which is why the FBI has added her to their famous list. And they're offering $100,000 if you do happen to see her. Amanda Ronchik, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from the NPR Wine Club, bringing the wine world to people's homes with wines inspired by NPR, like Tiny Desk Chardonnay, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Hundreds of San Diego police officers got to skip the COVID vaccine because they said it was against their religion. But it meant that they had to get tested for COVID regularly. And now some officers argue their religion says they can't even get tested. From member station KPBS, Claire Tregesser reports. On a cloudy afternoon in April, San Diego police officers stopped a man for smoking in a public park. What brought you over here today? Just using the bathroom. The man lied about his name and birthday, so they decided to arrest him and ended up tackling him to the ground. Put your hands behind your back. Put your hands behind your back. Stop! Police body camera video shows two officers lying on top of the man. Their faces are next to his face, and they weren't wearing masks. A police officer is not vaccinated, is declining testing, and is not masked. That could be a really dangerous situation for people. Rebecca Fielding Miller is an epidemiologist at UC San Diego. For Many, many people, it's not voluntary to interact with the police. San Diego requires all city employees to be vaccinated for COVID. But records requests from KPBS show many police officers argued vaccines are against their religion. The city approved those exemptions but required them to take weekly COVID tests. The records, which had the officers' names removed, go on to reveal that some say testing goes against their religion too. They claim the test swabs contain the carcinogen ethylene oxide, but it's not actually present on the swabs. It's used as a gas to sterilize them. 
They point to passages from 1 Corinthians about bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit to bolster their claim. It really strains credulity that this would have any application there at all. Caroline's Purdue is a New Testament professor at Point Loma Nazarene University. She says there's a great irony in using the Bible to justify avoiding some small chance of harm. When, you know, so much of the New Testament is focused and really fixated on a testimony to a savior who was willing to undertake death and then told Christians that they would need to take up their cross and follow. The city of San Diego is still negotiating with the police officers, but for now they remain on the job unvaccinated and untested. I think we have been exceedingly patient uh, with these folks. Mayor Todd Gloria says the city has to work with the police union before taking any action. If folks continue to resist being compliant uh, with our adopted vaccine mandate, uh, we will have to terminate their employment with the city, and that would be regrettable. Police in many other cities, New York, Chicago, Seattle, are also using religion to push back on COVID vaccination requirements. But a religious exemption for testing is going too far, according to Larry James. He's the general counsel for the Fraternal Order of Police. I doubt very seriously whether that's going to be a successful argument. He thinks for these officers, it's not really about religion. It's more a philosophical standpoint. Not just that I don't want the government to tell me what to do and what not to do. It says I want to be the person who decides. But there is no deciding for most people who come in contact with officers. They don't have a choice whether to interact with police. For NPR News, I'm Claire Tregesser in San Diego. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, Ukraine's president consolidates all TV platforms into one state broadcast restricting his political opponents and getting their message in. Also, the Spotify playlist that doubles as a cookbook. That and more coming up here on WBUR. Remember, stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny and cooler tomorrow with highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 84 degrees in Boston at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood, presenting the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Boston Pops, guest artists, and more in the Berkshire Hills this summer. Details and performance schedule at tanglewood.org. On boat after boat, Doreen Cunningham and her young son followed the long migration path of gray whales. Their endurance, how they keep going through difficulty, that helped me when I was finding life hard. She talks about their journey in her new book, Soundings. Also, Boris Johnson, done as prime minister, but what's next for Britain? Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Ukraine has had to take extraordinary measures to fight Russia's invasion. Among them, the government has consolidated the country's television outlets and dissolved rival political parties. It says it needs to do this to maintain a united front in fighting Russia. NPR's Emily Fang reports from Kyiv. 
Before the war, Ukraine had a dizzying array of television news stations. But in March, President Zelensky decided to consolidate them into one 24-hour channel. But not all stations were included. This is the swanky studio for Kyiv-based television station Priyami, which means direct. It was once owned by former Ukrainian president and billionaire Petro Poroshenko. He was also a political competitor of Zelensky's. And Priyami's reports have been excluded from the new national broadcast and most cable networks. We were switched off from digital broadcast and excluded from the national channel. We have not been provided any reasons for this. This is Svetlana Orlovska, the executive producer. Before the war, she was concerned mostly with keeping her anchors happy and the shows running on time. Now she's worried about the network's survival. We do hope we can begin broadcasting again after Ukraine wins the war. But during the martial law, there are certain restrictions. We cannot oppose our exclusion. Even before Russia invaded in February, some of Ukraine's opposition media outlets said they faced political pressure from President Zelensky's government. Volodymyr Mizhelsky directs one of Ukraine's oldest television stations, Channel 5. It was also previously owned by former President Poroshenko, who sold his media holdings under a 2021 Ukrainian law. After Channel 5 was sold, the government suspected the sale was false and Poroshenko still controlled the station. We felt consistently pressure from institutions like the broadcast regulator. We have numerous lawsuits filed against us by current and former members of parliament. Why the government attention, I ask him. I think we were switched off because there was a fear that this time we would not support the president's point of view. Late last year, Zelensky announced Poroshenko was being investigated for treason. And this past March, 11 political parties were suspended and any of their elected members dismissed from office for being pro-Russian. Most were fringe, but one party had nearly 10 percent of seats in Ukraine's parliament. Ukraine's Minister of Culture tells NPR Ukraine also had to take a stronger anti-Russian stance when it came to the country's media landscape. During the last several years, we definitely realized what does it mean Russian propagandistic machine. To be united in the time of war, it means that we need to coordinate our efforts. And he characterized the lack of any opposition outlets from Ukraine's new national broadcast channel as simply a lack of space. It's a tricky issue how to include newcomers. And Russian interference in Ukraine is a real problem, especially now that there's a hot war with Russia. Another political opponent, the pro-Russian billionaire Viktor Medvedchuk, was recently arrested and his business assets seized because of his close ties to Vladimir Putin. Victoria Sumar is a member of parliament and part of the same political party as Poroshenko technically making her the opposition to Zelensky's party. But she stresses she's still a patriot. Today, I believe in Ukraine that there are no anti-government opposition forces. All Ukrainian politicians are united in opposition to Putin and Putin's Russia. But she does have some complaints about Zelensky's government. The first difference is their attitude towards freedom of speech. We fiercely oppose the government on this. Restrictions on these worry the opposition. Namely, that Zelensky is clearing out political rivals before the 2024 presidential election. Before the war, he was a deeply unpopular president. I think there is such a danger of centralization of power, of 
even authoritarian tendencies. Andreas Umland is at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, and he says an adversarial, highly personal party dynamic drives Ukrainian politics. Parties disappear, new parties arrive, uh, parties transform, and often the fate of a party is very much tied to the fate of the leader. But despite the restrictions placed under martial law, Umland does not believe Ukraine will ultimately trend authoritarian. Well, about this sort of now already established consensus in society that there should be always an opposition, there should be different voices. These questions have become only more important as Ukraine tries to join the European Union. Not only does it have to win a war against Russia, it'll have to prove it's a stable government with democratic institutions like a free press. Emily Fang, NPR News, Kyiv. All right, many of us have, well, at least attempted to cook by following a recipe in a book. But have you ever tried assembling a dish by following a Spotify playlist? Well, Noah Conk is a designer based in San Francisco, and to share his recipe for kimchi fried rice, he put together a three-hour-long 51-song playlist with each song title describing a specific ingredient, measurement, or instruction. I basically went through the search function of searching for the word that I needed or a combination of words. The first word he needed and the place most recipes start was a song called Ingredients. I just found out a new ingredient. Then there's a song called Three. Next, a tune called Tablespoons. And then unsalted butter. Unsalted butter. Three tablespoons of unsalted butter you get, or, or maybe you taste the idea now? <laughs> Kong says he picked kimchi fried rice because it is a favorite comfort food of his. Growing up, I never really ate too much Korean food because I'm an adoptee. But that changed in college. That was my opportunity of meeting other Korean, what we call Korean Korean people. And he learned how to cook the cuisine by watching chefs on YouTube, like Chef Chris Cho. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your boy Chef Chris Cho here. Kong says Cho's recipe for kimchi fried rice inspired his own. But Kong did put his own spin on things, which some people had questions about. They're like, why unsalted butter? And I'm like, it allows you to salt to taste. And the goal of butter is to bring out the subtle nuances of kimchi. Now, the original playlist did not include the song Butter by South Korean boy band BTS. <laughs> Smooth like butter, like criminal. I realized, I was like, how could I forget the butter song, like, in a kimchi fried rice uh, recipe playlist? He's since updated that playlist to correct that oversight. Kong's musical recipe has more than 4,000 likes. And after the songs top off with sesame seeds the playlist ends with the song winner circle by anderson pack you made it to the end and you're in the winner circle you're part of this collective of people who can make kimchi fried rice from a playlist and it's also like a subtle nod to anderson pack being uh korean so if you're looking for a kitchen project this weekend maybe ditch those cookbooks and just turn up the music you're listening to all things considered from npr news support for npr comes from this station 
And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour, as All Things Considered continues, the Ukrainian clown working to lift children's spirits after they've been displaced by the Russian invasion, despite being a refugee himself. That's coming up. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight. Overnight lows in the mid-60s. All sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 85 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An assassin shoots and kills former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Japan's longest-serving head of state since the end of World War II. It's Friday, July 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, what we know about the assassination, which apparently included a homemade firearm. Gun violence is extremely rare overall in Japan. It's very difficult to buy a gun. It's not a matter of political debate as it is in the United States. Also this hour, BA5 of the Omicron variant becomes the dominant strain in the U.S., pushing COVID infections higher, though experts say its impact is manageable. And at 6.30, it's Marketplace. Tonight, why the number of women in the labor force dropped in June. It's 6.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A New Orleans judge has allowed a near-total abortion ban to take effect in Louisiana. This as President Biden has signed an executive order authorizing incremental steps to protect access to abortion services. Rosemary Westwood with member station WWNO has more. Orleans Parish Civil District Court Judge Ethel Sims Julian declined to extend a temporary restraining order that had been allowing abortions to continue despite Louisiana's abortion trigger law. The judge sided with the state attorney general and the Louisiana Department of Health, ruling that a lawsuit filed against Louisiana's abortion ban was filed in the wrong jurisdiction. Lawyers had argued the law is unconstitutionally vague and that its language makes it unclear when the ban would take effect. The Louisiana law criminalizes all abortions, except for when the patient's life is at risk or the fetus won't survive. For NPR News, I'm Rosemary Westwood in New Orleans. 
Tensions over Ukraine dominated today's meeting of G20 ministers with Russia's top diplomat walking out. NPR's Charles Maines has details. The U.S. and its Western allies went into the G20 meeting promising Russia's actions in Ukraine meant this event could not be business as usual, and indeed it was not. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov abandoned the talks early, complaining that Western officials were only interested in, quote, fevered criticism of Moscow. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in particular accused Russia of triggering a global food crisis with its blockade of Ukrainian grain, a charge Moscow denies. Ministers also abandoned a traditional G20 group photo over Lavrov's presence, even as the summit's Indonesian host called on ministers to search for a negotiated end to the conflict in Ukraine. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Israeli and Palestinian leaders have held held rare high-level talks ahead of President Biden's visit to the region next week. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid called Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas the first conversation between the top Israeli leader and the top Palestinian leader in five years. Israeli President Isaac Herzog also called Abbas, and Defense Minister Benny Gantz paid a rare visit to meet the Palestinian leader at his headquarters in the occupied West Bank. All the leaders discussed the need for a secure and stable atmosphere for President Biden's trip next week to Israel and the West Bank. No peace talks have been held since 2014. The Biden administration says the parties are not ready for talks now. But Israel's caretaker government is led by centrists who support more cooperation with Palestinians. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Tesla CEO Elon Musk is formally seeking to break off his agreement to buy Twitter, sending a letter to Twitter's board and filing it with the SEC. He accuses Twitter of making false and misleading representations about the prevalence of fake accounts. Stocks were mixed today, the S&P 500 closing the week overall with a 2% gain. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The state's Department of Public Health is making a change to how often it reports out new COVID case data. Starting next week, officials will release information on case numbers, hospitalizations, and infection rates once a week, down from the current five. The board, the disciplines, attorneys in Massachusetts, is recommending the toughest sanction possible against a former prosecutor. The Board of Bar Overseers, or BBO, is proposing disbarment for a former assistant attorney general over a state drug lab scandal. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The board says Ann Kaczmarek should be disbarred for withholding exculpatory evidence in the case of disgraced chemist Sonia Farrick. After Farrick pleaded guilty to using drugs she was supposed to be testing, defense attorneys discovered that Farrick's drug use went on longer than the AG's office claimed. Thousands of criminal cases were dismissed. Assistant Bar Counsel Joe McAlusky says the board's recommendation is precedent-setting. It should reassure the public that such egregious misconduct will be dealt with severely, and it should warn other prosecutors to be careful. The BBO recommends one year and three month law license suspensions for two other former prosecutors. The proposed penalties must be approved by the state's highest court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The Sumner Tunnel will be closed for the weekend starting tonight at 11 o'clock and will remain closed until Monday morning at 5. The shutdown is for repairs to the 87 year old tunnel that connects East Boston with downtown. The project means the tunnel will be closed to traffic every weekend with the exception of holiday weekends until next May. Transportation officials say drivers in the area should expect delays. A group of Boston researchers is trying to protect the city from flooding using something it calls the Emerald Tutu. 
It's a system of circular mats covered in plants floating just offshore. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri explains by 2050, Boston could see nuisance flooding on about half the days each year thanks to climate change. The roughly seven-foot disks are biodegradable, with marsh grass growing above and seaweed below. They're also meant to be connected to each other. Lead scientist Julia Hopkins says that means waves have to push through multiple barriers of vegetation before reaching land. And all of that works together to take energy out of the wave because the wave is suddenly trying to get through a connected system that it wasn't anticipating. The goal of the system is to reduce flooding in particularly vulnerable areas, buying time for other climate adaptations. The researchers are testing the mats near Salem in Boston Harbor and have plans for a large-scale test next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Hannah Schnatry. In sports, Red Sox host the Yankees for the second game of a four-game set at Fenway tonight. Connor Seabold getting the start for the Sox. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. Lows in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny and cooler tomorrow. Highs in the mid-70s. And Sunday, more sunshine. Highs in the upper 70s. Right now, 85 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. BA5, a subvariant of Omicron, is now dominant in the U.S., and it accounts for more than half of all COVID infections. Its quick rise corresponds with an increase in reinfections and hospitalizations. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now with more. Hey, Allison. Hi, Elsa. Good to be here. Good to have you. Okay, so tell us more about BA5. Like, does its rise mean we're going to go into another surge here in the U.S.? Well, I think we're in the midst of a silent surge at a time when most people use rapid tests. It's hard to know just how many people are infected. Yeah. But one indicator, Elsa, is that hospitalizations appear to be rising slightly again. And reinfections are on the rise, too, according to some data from New York, for instance. Some people who were infected with Omicron in December or January are getting it again. Uh, here's Michael Osterholm. He's an infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota. This is really a hyper-transmissible virus. And if you look right now, as BA5 is increasing, we're seeing this exposure now with the level of infections with this virus is if you have a good elevator ride, you very well could get infected. This really struck me also, this idea that an elevator ride with an infected person could be enough of an exposure, yeah. uh, even for those of us who've been vaccinated and boosted. I mean, I'm one of those people who got COVID back in December. So where does this leave us? Mm-hmm. What does this mean for the fall, you think? Well, the more curveballs this virus is thrown, the more humble scientists like Osterholm have become. It's just hard to predict. But I think what is clear, according to lots of the infectious disease experts I've talked to, is that even as the subvariants have become even more transmissible, the bottom line is that the impact of a BA5 surge or whatever subvariant comes next will not likely be on the scale of last winter. We will be able to manage better. I talked to Anna Durbin, a physician at Johns Hopkins, about this. She said, we're already seen this. The combination of prior infections, vaccinations is protective. She points out hospitalizations are up, but only slightly, and there are more tools to treat people who do get sick. 
most people have some underlying immunity that is helpful in fighting the virus. We have antivirals. And I think because of that, we're not seeing a rise in deaths. And that's very reassuring. That tells me that this virus, even BA5, is not so divergent that it is escaping all arms of the immune system. She says as more children are vaccinated and new boosters come online to specifically target Omicron, which could happen around September, Mm -hmm. this will be helpful. Well, about children, it has been, what, three weeks since very young children, we're talking between six months old and five years old, they've been eligible to get COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. So have parents actually been getting their little children vaccinated the past three weeks? So far, only about 1% of the roughly 20 million kids in this age group have gotten their first shot. The CDC just released first numbers last night, uh, 267,000 children. My first reaction to that was, wow, after hearing from so many parents were so eager, it was quite low, it seemed. But uh, I spoke to Dr. Cameron Webb. He's a senior advisor on the White House COVID response team. He says the expectation is that many parents will ultimately opt for vaccines during well visits. What we heard from parents is that they wanted to get their kids vaccinated overwhelmingly in their pediatricians' offices, and nearly half said they wanted to do it during a regularly scheduled visit. And so you're going to continue to see a steady stream of parents with kids under five getting their kids vaccinated in the weeks and months to come. Some pediatricians have just begun to start offering the COVID shots to this age group, so there's some optimism the pace will pick up or at least be steady. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Elsa. Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated this morning at a campaign rally in the Japanese city of Nara. The suspected shooter used a handmade gun in a country where this sort of violence is incredibly rare. Matoko Rich is Tokyo bureau chief for The New York Times, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Do we know anything yet about who the suspected gunman is and what may have motivated him? Right now, we know very little. We know his name. His name is Tetsuya Yamagumi. He's 41 years old. He lived in the neighborhood. Um, He has said that he held a grudge against an organization that he believed was connected to Prime Minister Abe or former Prime Minister Abe, and that he did go to the site intending to kill him. But we don't really understand what he meant by that and what his motive is, but we're hoping that we'll find out more as the investigation unfurls. I mentioned that gun violence is incredibly rare in Japan. Can you talk a little bit more about that or how unusual of of an assassination this is? It's exceedingly rare. I mean, the last time there was a political assassination was in 1960 and it was carried out with knives. I mean, the other sad uh, connection to Prime Minister Abe is that his grandfather, who was also a prime minister, um, was attacked by uh, a would-be assassin, um, but he was stabbed six times and he survived that attack. Um, but gun violence is extremely rare overall in Japan. I mean, they're just, it's very difficult to buy a gun. Um, it's not a matter of political debate as it is in the United States. Um, the assailant in this case, or the assassin in this case, used a homemade gun. Um, so overall, it's, it's, it's just extremely rare, and everyone in Japan is shocked. I mean, we've talked to lots of people today who say, you know, this is so un-Japanese, we couldn't believe this could happen here. It's really shattered a sense of safety that people have here. Mm. You've mentioned that people have been shattered and horrified. I, I wonder, how are people remembering Abe? What do you think will stand out as his legacy? 
first and foremost, I think people will remember that he had immense longevity. He was the longest serving prime minister in Japan's history. He ushered in an era that he dubbed Abenomics. He pushed through some laws in 2015, which allowed Japanese uh, soldiers to participate in overseas combat missions if they were fighting alongside allies. He pushed Japan to increase defense spending. He pushed Japan onto the world stage in efforts to make Japan a leader in the region as uh, a defense against a rising China. Uh, he curried favor with uh, world leaders, including Donald Trump. Um, but he also did not do what he set out to do, which was to revise the Constitution. The Constitution was written by American occupiers in the post-war uh, era and has a pacifist clause in it. And he wanted to revise that and he never managed to accomplish that. I know you've done a good deal of reporting on Abe's record with women. On that count, how do you think he'll be remembered? Well, I think on the one hand, he kind of put the issue of women's empowerment on the table. Um, he coined the term or he took up the term womanomics and talked about the importance of leveraging this sort of a massive labor pool among 50% of the country, well-educated people uh, who could contribute to the economy. And he was right about that. And he often was very proud of having presided over a period in which Japan's labor force participation among women rose. What he sometimes failed to mention was that a lot of those women were working in contract jobs without benefits, low-paying jobs, part-time jobs, and that they also carried an enormous burden at home, which was not a alleviated by Japan's work culture um, and over his watch, although he promised to make certain targets like increasing the proportion of women who served in government, including in his party uh, and in business, none of those targets were reached while he was prime minister. So there was criticism of the, the fact that he prom made a lot of promises and didn't deliver. On the other hand, one has to give credit where credit is due. He kind of put it on the map as an issue and now, uh, in this upcoming upper house election, more women are standing as candidates than ever before in a Japanese national election. That was Matoko Rich, the Tokyo bureau chief for The New York Times. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now, we're going to remember a pioneer in black hair care. William Lee Morrow was from Alabama, but he made his name as a barber in San Diego, California, after he moved there in 1959. In 1962, a family friend returned from studying in Nigeria with a gift, a wooden comb. But where a standard comb has a lot of teeth close together, this one had fewer teeth. They were longer, spread farther apart. It was perfect for teasing out curly hair. That comb, African comb from the actual continent, he, he wanted to, to make it available in the Western world. Willie Morrow's daughter, Cheryl, says her father taught himself how to make and then mass produce the comb that everyone now knows as the Afro pick, but it didn't take off right away. It, it was a slow turn because when you're an innovator, you know, you're first. His time would come. The civil rights movement of the 60s inspired younger black people to turn away from the white aesthetic of straight hair for a more natural look. And the Afro became the rage in part because it was also a political statement. And Morrow had since become an expert on what he called the Afro natural. He wrote books about it and everyone, it seemed, wanted his know-how and his Afro pics. At one point, he was selling 12,000 a week. 
1969, the Pentagon, which was clueless on the subject, hired Morrow to teach thousands of barbers in the military how to style black hair with a pick, says his daughter Cheryl. He taught how to hold it, how to get the most impact out of it, how to fluff the hair up and then align it and then cut it and then the art of, you know, shaving black men in the military. By the late 70s, the Afro craze was fading, but Morrow stayed on trend. His California curl products allowed for softer, looser curls. They were copied widely. And eventually, what was later known as the Jerry Curl became the hottest style for young black folks in the 1980s. His daughter, Cheryl, eventually took over his business, which also included a radio station and a newspaper. She says the hairstyle most associated with her father was a kind of freedom for everyone. Afro allowed even white Americans, to just wear their hair down and straight and don't care if they go to the salon. William Lee Morrow died last month. He was 82 years old. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the Ukrainian clown, who is a refugee himself, trying to lighten the spirits of others who've been displaced by the Russian invasion. In business news, French pharmaceutical Sanofi is paying a Waltham biotech company up to $2 billion to develop new technology for cancer and immune treatments. The deal with Skyhawk Therapeutics includes $54 million up front with the rest in milestone payments. It's the latest big deal for Skyhawk. The four-year-old company's already secured collaborations with Merck, Biogen, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. On Wall Street, little change for the markets today. Dow was down 46 points. The Nasdaq rose 13 points. And the S&P 500 fell 3 points. It's 620. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Remember, join Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's podcast, Circle Round, tomorrow at City Space to celebrate the launch of Circle Round's picture books. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Forecast says mostly cloudy tonight. We'll see overnight lows in the mid-60s. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The vast displacement and movement of people around Ukraine amid the Russian invasion includes children bearing the stresses of war. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley found one person in western Ukraine displaced himself, trying to lighten their burden. He's known as Igor the Clown. There's a special live performance at this vine-covered open-air cafe in Chernovitsi's Taras Shevchenko Park. Igor the Clown has come to put on a show for the children. Bouncing around in a three-piece red suit, frizzy wig, and straw top hat, Igor asks the kids where they're from. Hands shoot up. Donetsk, Mikolaev, 
Many are from the current war hotspots. Ruslana Mikaluk owns the seasonal cafe Lito, or summer cafe, and hired Clown Igor for the children. Because they have dress, they listen like bomb, like, you know, very, like, bad emotion. Now we want to make nice emotion. And now they feel like life is continuing. Mikaluk has employed some of the children's parents in her cafe. She won't make a profit this summer, she says, but that's okay. Igor engages the children. There is frenetic dancing, jokes, and candy. Do you know how to say your country's name in English for our special guests, he asked them, referring to me. The kids draw pictures and belt out patriotic folk songs. At one point, he asked them about their dreams. I dreamed we beat the Russians, said the tiny girl. After the show, clown Igor Honcharev tells me it hurts to hear such things from children. He himself is from Lysyshansk, the last holdout town in the Luhansk region that fell to the Russians last week. My little town, Lysychansk, destroyed town. My town is fire now. He fled three months ago when the water, electricity, and gas were cut. Before the war started in 2014, Honcharev worked as a clown during the summer season in Crimea. Then Crimea was our country. Ten years all the summer. The parents are invited to come waltz with their children. Oksana Mikalenko is here with her young son and invites us to sit with people from across Ukraine. Kharkiv, Berdyansk, Mariupol, Kiev. Mikalenko, a doctor from near Mariupol, says people refuse to cooperate with the occupiers. But she says the Russians are threatening to take their kids from them if they don't put them in school with the new Russian teachers. And my youngest son, he is six, and this year he enters school. So I decided that he needs to have happy childhood quiet a childhood, safe childhood, that's why I left. Mikalenko says Igor the Clown made her son so happy, and today, for the first time, she feels like she's home again. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Chernovitsi, Ukraine. The movie Thor Love and Thunder opens in thousands of theaters this weekend. It is the latest adventure of Marvel's hammer-throwing, axe-wielding superhero. And the movie is expected to bring millions of patrons to cinemas that have been bustling in an almost pre-pandemic way lately. We asked critic Bob Mondello whether those viewers will be thoroughly entertained, and here's what he told us. Marvel movies come in all shapes and sizes. Thor Love and Thunder is for the crowd that likes children's stories. Kids, get to popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. That voice is Taika Waititi, who directed and who also voices Korg, Thor's made of rock pal. He's speaking to what's left of Thor's home kingdom of Asgard, now reduced to a sort of Scandinavian theme park complete with Viking boat rides, kid-oriented superhero theater, and tourists who presumably couldn't afford Disney World. Thor, meanwhile, is off on another planet with Team Groot, who I'm guessing had some unbooked green screen time on the Guardians of the Galaxy set and wanted to plug Volume 3, which opens in a few months. You said this would be a relaxing holiday! 
I said it was going to be like a relaxing holiday. It's while they're relaxing in battle that Thor learns of a villain called the God Butcher. It's also where he acquires two giant screaming goats. Look at those! They are wonderful! Yes, they are. They also scream quite a lot. And that's funny for maybe 30 seconds, though they'll be screaming for the rest of the movie. Back at the theme park, the Asgardian kids get kidnapped by the God Butcher, and Thor puts together a rescue team that includes King Valkyrie, Korg, who's not quite wearing out his welcome yet, and Thor's ex... Judy Foster. Jane Foster. ...who has health issues, as played by Natalie Portman, and is using his old hammer for physical... therapy. When wielding the hammer, she's known a bit confusingly as the Mighty Thor. Happily, what she lacks in experience, she makes up for in enthusiasm, as when Thor says the kids are being held in the Shadow Realm... The atmosphere there has a darkness like no other. It's as if color fears to tread. It's unmistakable. Well, then, if it's color we need, let's bring the rainbow. And she crashes through the roof... Bring the rainbow, is that a catchphrase or something? She's only been a Thor for a minute. I mean, saving lives, she's quite good at, but the rest of it, she needs work. How many catchphrases have there been? A lot. And she's back. Yep. Jump the gun. But hang on. He moves through shadows and he's going to the Shadow Realm. It seems like that's where he's going to be the most powerful. You're right. We can't just go marching in there. It could be a trap. Are you thinking what I think you're thinking? I'm thinking it. What are we thinking? Thinking what? I'm thinking it too. Omnipotency. Tongues planted so firmly in cheek they're practically coming out ears is an approach that served Waititi well when he directed Thor Ragnarok, and it's still amusing, though the realms around our heroes seem vaguely second tier this time. Blue-painted otherworldians mincing around in baby steps like superannuated Smurfs. You have finally joined our fight. Well, as they say, better late than not at all. Backgrounds that are the digital equivalent of spray-painted van art, monsters that look like projections once Team Thor gets to the Shadow Realm, where Christian Bale's justifiably bitter God Butcher... The only ones who gods care about is themselves. ...might as well be one of the witches in Joel Cohn's Tragedy of Macbeth. So this is my vow. Bale gets to actually emote, which gives him a few advantages over Chris Hemsworth's amiable but emotionally adolescent himbo, who's good at smashing things but should really take his cues from Tessa Thompson's understated Valkyrie. My, uh, sensing feelings. At least when it comes to Jane. <laughs> well, you're right. The goofiness in Thor Love and Thunder will doubtless be fine for fans, something Marvel can take to the bank. As for suspense, or thrills, grandeur, maybe a feeling that something might be in Thor mountable, that doesn't really seem to be the big guy's thing anymore. I'm Bob Mundell. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, it's Marketplace. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the mid-70s. Right now, 85 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital. Thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital nine years in a row. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. 
Charles River Apparel, a third-generation family-run business committed to creating timeless apparel you can count on. Learn more at charlesriverapparel.com. And Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com.